friends welcome to the book reading session by commander arun jyoti retired rashtriya raksha academy 1086 cadet parade par parade aapke nirikshan ke liye hazir hai the ramrod strait academy cadet captain of the national defense academy has just walked up to the reviewing dignitary his sword shining bright the metal on his uniform gleaming and he is leading his coursemates who would soon be taking that coveted antim pug from the quarter deck of the hallowed khetarpal parade ground the permission granted by the dignitary and the parade smartly turns left the 1086 feet stamp hard and a thud echoes across the sprawling campus of the majestic national institution of india the boys of the passing out course become men from here on as they step outside to join their respective service academies to take on higher positions as indian armed service officers to take you through the experience called academy life let me talk you through a wonderful book called academy bonded for life written by lieutenant colonel rohit agarwal from the 75th course of the national defense academy and who was commissioned into 74th armored regiment in 1989 colonel rohit agarwal took premature retirement from the army in 2010 and now lives in delhi he balances his time between writing and working as a learning and development consultant his earlier books include the delhi darbar 1911 complete story riding the raisina tiger brave men of war heroes of 1965 vijay ya virgati and in the line of fire the forward of the book academy bonded for life has been written by Colonel Rajyavardhan Rathore Ati Vishisht Seva Medal Colonel Rathore who belongs to the 77th course of the National Defence Academy has written that he aptly describes the National Defence Academy as a cradle for leadership and it is a unique joint service institution it was the only of its kind in the world when it was first established in 1954 and subsequently numerous countries have modeled their academies after it it has prepared generations of army navy and air force officers for the challenging task of leading men and machines into mortal danger the litany of gallantry awards won by its alumni most of them posthumous bears testimony to how well the academy is performing this role Colonel Rathore writes that personally he can proudly say that he has the physical and mental toughening at the academy to thank in large measure for making him what he is today. He further writes that the training schedule at the academy is grueling. In the junior terms the unofficial schedule of toughening is equally tough if not more so. It is the combination of these two that forges a young boy joining the academy from school into a leader capable of commanding men who are often older and more experienced than him. All of us who have spent 3 years in these hallowed premises have fond memories of that time despite this grueling schedule. This is because despite the busy routine there's always been time for fun and games. you can't keep teenage young men closely confined and expect them not to get into all kinds of mischief no matter how unpleasant the potential consequences so as the year passes it is the good times that remain as pleasant memories and the tough times don't seem as tough as they probably were flipping through these chapters colonel rathor writes that one is transported back to those formative years spent constantly on the go with very little time to stop and think he could identify with each incident each narrative and it turned out to be a nostalgic read for him indeed 
He is confident that every ex-NDA will have a similar experience reading or listening through this book. And for others, it will provide an insightful, amusing window into the cloistered life of an NDA cadet. He has appreciated the author's effort in opening this window for the outside world. And the book has some wonderful cartoons that bring the narrative to life. Going through the contents of the book, let me take you through the page of introduction. The author, Colonel Agarwal, states that three decades ago, measuring the length of the corridor in my squadron via front rolls, I never imagined a time when I would look back nostalgically at those days, let alone write a book about them. I now realize the wisdom of what Nietzsche said, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. The three years at the academy surely made us stronger physically and mentally. Decades later, we can withstand whatever life throws at us without flinching, thanks to the never-say-die attitude installed in us back at the academy. Going through the first chapter, which is aptly titled as The Arrival. As the train chugged into Pune station, all four of us found our levels of anxiety rising. Gurdeep, Murli, Prashant and I sat in a sleeper coach of Jhelum Express looking glumly at each other, like condemned men awaiting their sentence to begin. The stale smell of yesterday's dinner eaten by 72 inhabitants of the coach, most facing the wall or windows to avoid eye contact with others, still hung in the air, adding to the depressing environment. In the past 36 hours, we had learned quite a bit about each other. Gurdeep and I had a military background in common, though his pedigree stretched back seven generations more than mine. His ancestors, he claimed, had fought in the first Anglo-Sikh war. The other two, in contrast, came from civilian backgrounds. Murli's father was a minor bureaucrat in one of the ministries and Prashant's father ran a shop in Karolbagh. Both were pioneers from their entire extended families to venture out into joining the armed forces. Gurdeep and I had spent our lives moving from one cantonment to another. While both of them had lived all their lives in the house, they had been born in. They had studied in one school through kindergarten to date, while I had seldom attended two classes in the same school. Despite the differences in our backgrounds, we felt equally apprehensive and unsure about what lay in store. The excitement of the past few months hadn't given us an opportunity to worry earlier. Passing the National Defence Academy exam had been exhilarating and clearing the Service Selection Board interview had put us on top of the world. Each of us must have had our reasons to take an irrevocable career decision so early in life. In my case, it was the only life I had seen. When my brother went off to the academy six years ago, I had thought of following his footsteps. Seeing him as a young officer in black dungarees riding a motorcycle strengthened my resolve. The tantalizing prospect of not having to appear in the dreaded class 12th board exam was added incentive. The past two months, ever since my SSB results had been favorable, I had not missed a single day of school. Not for any newfound love for academics, but to revel in the misery of my classmates toiling away preparing for the boards. But the closer we got to the Pune station, the more uncertain I got of the wisdom of my decision. Maybe the exams were the lesser evil after all. I couldn't back out now, especially since my father had made his opinion on the matter clear. It was my own decision, not his. In fact, he had even tried to dissuade me from closing my options. Complete your graduation and then, if you still want to join, you can go through the Combined Defence Services exam for entry into the Indian Military Academy or Officers Training Academy he had suggested, but I remained adamant. Besides, with the board exams just two months away, I knew I could not back out. I wondered whether I would regret my obstinacy. 
My train of thoughts was interrupted as the one we were travelling in jerked to a halt. I stepped off the train and looked around the platform. Besides the four of us in our compartment, quite a few boys in other coaches were unmistakably headed for the NDA. Olive green holdalls and steel trunk, black in colour, length 100 centimetres, width 55 centimetres and height not to exceed 25 centimetres as the joining instructions had specified were clear giveaways. Later we learnt that the specific height of the trunk ensured it fitted under the beds at the academy. Supposedly, the height of the bed was kept low to prevent cadets from hiding under it. Many of us with the tell-tale luggage congregated on the platform looking for some kind of a reception party we expected to be present. Suddenly, a whirlwind of olive green brass, leather and moustaches came out of nowhere and engulfed us in its fold. It didn't need any asking or telling for the experienced eyes of the seasoned drill instructors in the reception committee to home on to us amongst the thronging crowd. It was there that I was first addressed as what would virtually be my identity for the next three years. A cadet, one drill instructor barked, Either fall in, go. Also, words that would be part of our lives now, the go being shouted with a gutso that would put the starter at the Olympic tracks events to shame. It took us a while and some prodding to understand that they expected the alarcity of our response also to be like an Olympian starting a 100 meter dash. There we stood on the platform in three ranks in parade ground fashion. A bunch of scrawny, scraggy 16-somethings barely out of school but already on our way to becoming officers in the armed forces. I tried my best to appear what in my limited knowledge was officer-like, or so I thought. But our mustachioed oppressors, more concerned about our present rather than the distant future, minced no words in dispelling any misplaced sense of importance any of us had about our status. The drill instructor is a unique creature with its own peculiar tongue, the dialect of which depends on the regiment he is from. But more about drill instructors later, as they deserve more space than can be spared at this initial stage of the narrative. We boarded an olive green bus, our luggage stowed in accompanying trucks by an invisible horde of civilian orderlies without need of any direction from us or the drill instructors. After a short drive, we arrived at our home for the next six months, the National Defence Academy wing. It was located in Ghorpudi, a sleepy suburb of Pune, famous only for its proximity to the Koregaon Park ashram of Osho Rajneesh. All cadets spent first term here, away from the dreaded clutches of seniors at the main academy campus in Khadagwasla. Gurdeep informed anyone who cared to listen that this cloistering of freshers had started 10 years ago because of some extreme incidents of toughening that had led to the death of a first-termer. The result was not an altogether cessation of the loving care by seniors but a mere postponement by six months. These six months were meant to acclimatize us Roy boys fresh from the schools and make us physically fitter, better place to face what the main academy had to throw at us. The wing comprised of a neat cluster of World War II barracks with thick stone walls, red tiled roofs and pillared verandas on both sides. Large open spaces interspersed the barracks, playgrounds, PT fields and drill square which is also called the parade ground. We were soon destined to anatomically measure the length and breadth of all these in many innovative ways. Doesn't this remind you of Mao? Gurdeep asked me. In fact, the barracks and the fields seemed indistinguishable from those of a dozen cantonments I had grown up in. But the butterflies in my stomach prevented me from bothering to reply. The bus halted near a barrack-marked duty room and we filed down, trying to take in much of our surroundings as possible. The drill instructor ordered us to queue up in front of two tables and fill up the forms. I fill up my form on my turn 
and the uniform clerk sitting there allotted me the suffix and prefix that would complete my identity, my academy number and squadron. For the next six months, I was to be 18007 slash November slash 75 Cadet Rohit Agarwal. I spent the next three years unsuccessfully trying to live up to the last three digits of my academy number, never feeling bond-like enough to justify them though. The wing had two squadrons, Mike and November, Alpha to Lima being part of the main academy. Gurdeep and I were allotted November, while Prashant and Murli went to Mike. I saw very little of those two for the rest of our stay at the academy. A young beardless Sikh with a bossy demeanor led us off along with our other squadron mates toward our barracks. He didn't look like a drill instructor and he addressed us in English with a heavy Punjabi accent. He didn't look like an officer either. We were intrigued about his status, but the unmistakable air of authority he wore around himself like an invisible cloak didn't brook any questions from us disoriented, frightened rabbits. On his orders, we supervised the stowing of our respective belongings to our allotted barracks and fell in the squadron parade ground. I am Cadet Virdi and I am your senior, he said by the way of a perfunctory introduction. He proceeded to question the legitimacy of our birth and ordered us to get on our hands down, another command we added to our fast-growing lexicon of military terms. Quite a few of us didn't understand what he meant till we saw some others go down on fours. I wondered about the presence of a senior cadet at the wing, contrary to our expectations, and assumed they had sent him down from the main academy for doing what he was doing to us. We spent the next half an hour bending and stretching, doing push-ups without a murmur of protest. The distant sound of a motorcycle approaching rescued us from our ordeal as on hearing it, Virdi told us to get up and get off to our barracks. To relieved to wonder what caused his sudden change of heart, we scurried as ordered. After a few days, we learned that Virdi and a bunch of other so-called seniors were actually called brigadier cadets who had been relegated from the previous course. They had to join our course to repeat the first term instead of moving on to the academy with their own course. Later on in the academy, we would also meet quite a few generals, those relegated twice and a couple of field marshal cadets with the rare distinction of three relegations. By virtue of their seniority and familiarity with the surroundings and functioning of the wing, some of the brigadiers had been made appointments, a wing sergeant and two squadron sergeants, one for each squadron. Their job was to assist the instructors in passing down their orders, herding us around and accounting for our presence on every parade. It was more of a headache for them rather than a position of any real authority, but the system worked well enough. As the term progressed, appointments were rotated and cadets from our own course took over the mantle. Thank you for listening patiently and in the next podcast, I will take you through this wonderful book's second chapter called Initiation. Thank you. Friends, welcome to the book reading session by Commander Arun Jyoti, retired. I shall now take you through the part two of the book called Academy, Bonded for Life, written by Lieutenant Colonel Rohit Agarwal. If you have not heard the part one, I would recommend do not miss it as the four young boys reached the National Defense Academy wing to face the music called A Cadet's Life. Get in touch with me on 9650-339647 and I shall be happy to send the part across to you. Today, we shall be hearing the chapter called Initiation and this is how it goes. Soon, shorn of pretenses of being seniors, the brigadiers proved to be a huge help to us in settling down. They were an unending source of gyan about surviving the academy or at least the wing. The course 
not curriculum but as the batch was referred to and will be here in after and batch mates as course mates was about 350 strong it was divided between the two squadrons mike and november with each squadron further divided into five divisions these corresponded roughly to two houses of boarding schools the cadets of a division lived together in several dorms housing eight cadets each divisions and squadrons were also grouped together for most activities like pt drill and sports for academics yes it wasn't all about brawn we also had to acquire a bachelor's degree from jnu over the next 3 years we were divided into classes of about 30 cadets each labeled 1 to 6 for humanities and a to f for science apart from these official groupings we also fell into several unofficial groups or types as we called them the most common of these was school types those who had studied in the same school before joining the academy the biggest number was of the rimkolians from the rashtriya indian military college dehradun it was an elite military school set up by the british to groom indian princelings for military commission the princelings and the british long gone alumni of this fine institution constitute to join the academy in droves as did the students from the military and sanic schools military schools were also set up pre independence funded by the central government their alumni were called georgians before independence the schools were called king george military schools sanic schools had been set up by most state governments post independence and the alumni were identified by a derivative of the place the school was located kunjians for kunjpura tilayans for tilaya and so on then came the lesser mortals like me people from public schools convents kendriya vidyalayas and various other schools dotted across the country which did nothing to prepare us mentally or physically for the vagaries of life at the academy the rimkolians georgians and sanic school types on the other hand had spent the last 5 years doing pretty much what was done in the national defense academy so they were much better adapted to face the challenges they were physically much fitter than most of us and also smarter the instinct of self preservation just beginning to kick in for us had been honed and fine tuned in them through regular practice they had already mastered the art of shamming and smart acts of various types it took us a lot of practice but i can proudly say that by the time we passed out of the academy we were all at par in these arts i'm sure my wife would be willing to testify to me my shamming skills our living arrangements in the barracks consisted of a bed and a cabin cupboard for each of the eight cadets occupying it the former were typically nivar beds though infested with bedbugs born and brought up on the blood of our seniors and left behind to thrive on ours the latter was a 3 foot high wooden locker we soon came to hate for reasons that will unfold as we go along a study table table lamp and chair completed our inventory of furniture we were issued blankets and mosquito nets to accompany the rest of the bedding we carried from home as per the joining instructions all the other items of clothing that we were allowed to wear were issued to us except of course our underwear and night clothes the variety and complexity of our dresses would have put a victorian courtier to shame we wore khaki drill or the kd shorts and shirts for drill and for classes with black knee length stockings yes with carter flashes to hold them up these were two pieces of maroon serge cut into tiny swan tails and stitched onto a string the length of the fold of the stocking and the portion of the garter flashes that would be visible below the fold were measured by an l shaped aluminum stick imaginatively called the l stick issued to us for drills we wore hobnailed drill boots with kds 
For academic classes, we wore Oxford pattern shoes instead. PT rig was relatively simpler. Baggy white shorts, vest, olive green jersey made of really itchy material that seemed to have more jute than wool, OG socks of the same material and plain white canvas PT shoes. We also had a PT number, a piece of cloth with our academy number on it, which we attached to our shorts with safety pins. This was so that we could be identified and singled out even minus the name tag we wore on all other dresses. While appearing in public during off-duty hours, we had two alternatives, walking out, the full-sleeved and trousered version of KDs or Muftis, grey trouser, white shirt and academy tie. Private night suits were permissible within the barracks, but while stepping out, the toilets were not attached. We had to wear a dressing gown over them. Web equipment and OG dangris were also issued. Field Service Marching Order or FSMO for short. It made us feel very soldierly and warlike. But we soon learned what a liability they actually were when summoned in FSMO scale A. Big pack, blanket, mosquito net, the works. By our instructors as a punishment for random transgressions. To prevent intentional and unintentional mixing up of our kit, we also got a rubber stamp each to mark our academy numbers in permanent ink on all our belongings. In our barracks, each item of clothing had a fixed authorized place where it has to be kept. For example, the top shelf of our cupboard was meant to have KD shirts, hankies and PT number. The shoes were supposed to be placed at the foot of our bed in a specific order and our beds were to be made up in a particular way. All this was explained in a printed card given to us and when we left barracks for classes, everything had to be just so. Any private item that wasn't a part of the inventory mentioned in the card had to be locked up in our trunks. All other pieces of luggage, hold dolls and suitcases were stored away out of sight in a box room to prevent them breaking the uniformity. The slightest digression could draw swift reaction from our instructors. They prowled the barracks in our absence, looking for poor souls who had put their PT shoes to the right of their drill boots instead of the prescribed position on the left, or someone whose mosquito net wasn't folded properly. The retribution came in many forms depending on the individual instructor dishing it out. It ranged from summons to the cordon office after lunch for a session of muscle strengthening exercises to seven afternoons on the parade ground doing extra drills. To us schoolboys, accustomed to being mollycoddled at home, barring the Rimcos and Senex school types who took to the environment like fish to water, the first few days of such harsh regimentation were extremely unsettling. It seemed worse than the worst horror stories we had heard from our friends and relatives. Things don't seem as bad when you hear them described in other stories as when they are folding in your own lives. To me, life appeared to be one setback after the other. My carefully groomed hair had been offered on the altar of the gleeful barber. I had just reconciled to the fact that the close-cropped head in the mirror was my own when I learned that I had to shave off my moustache too. We were allowed to grow a moustache only after clearing the drill square test or DST which involved being able to march and salute to the satisfaction of a very discerning adjutant. Notwithstanding that most of us 16-year-olds had barely discernible moustaches, we mourned their loss like Rajputs of the Yore whose pride resided on their upper lips. And all those rules and regulations about dressing, room layout, I felt we were turning into identical robots of some assembly line. Gurdeep, a constant visitor to my barrack now, was mildly amused at my anguish at the loss of my moustache. But his amusement did not last long when he realized the amount of time he would have to spend every morning in getting his pagri tied to the satisfaction of the instructors and drill ustads. I hope you have enjoyed hearing what happens at the National Defence Academy during the initiation phase. 
So wait eagerly, folks, as I come out with the part three in a couple of days. Thank you and Jai Hind. Friends, welcome to the part three of the podcast on the book Academy Bonded for Life, written by Lieutenant Colonel Rohit Agarwal. Let us read the chapter called Routine. After the first few days of settling down, kit issue and orientation, our regular routine commenced. Of course, regular can be defined. differently by different people and for a long time this regularity caused great distress to most of us our day began early starting at 6 am we had two periods of 40 minutes each before breakfast these were mostly outdoors pt drill or a combination of both only once in a while did we have a flat when both periods before breakfast were academic classes To begin our first class at 6 we had to be present at the designated place by 5:45 a.m. and the senior cadet would give the parade state to the instructor before that at 5:30 we had the morning muster where the entire squadron would fall in the parade ground and a report would be given to the duty officer if inclined he would go around inspecting us to check our turnout to make sure we were dressed as immaculately as expected from us this was one of the highest punishment risk zones a speck of dirt on your otherwise snow white pt shoes or the stubble of a single hair on your chin missed out by a razor that morning could buy you woes for several afternoons to make it to the muster in time we had to wake up at least an hour earlier depending on what the first period was it took more time to dress up for drill while getting into pt rig was much easier and you had to contend for the low cadet to toilet ratio which was pretty adverse if you wanted to do your business in peace without suffering lingering odious odors or being hurried along by anxious door bangers you had to sacrifice the last 10 to 15 minutes of your precious sleep to rise before the rush Most of the times the toilets had no lights and most of the toilet booths had no latch. The caution with which one had to proceed is better left to imagination, one that I would not venture to describe. After the business of S and S, you got into your rig of the day. Quickly you made your bed, tidied up your area in an attempt to rise to the high expectations of your instructors. before rushing off to join the master after the master report and turnout inspection we recited the endia prayer it was an exhortation to the almighty to grant us strength to face the challenges the day would pose and also ones we would eventually face in doing our duty to the country it is an inspiring prayer encompassing all the values that we were expected to imbibe the fact that even now more than 30 years down the line i can close my eyes and recite it verbatim and get goosebumps while doing so is testimony to its inspirational nature master done we would form up in squads and double off to the location of our first period to the uninitiated doubling means running something we had to do while moving from place a to place b and we had to be in squads meaning two or three rows of two cadets each movement in any other mode would leave us liable to punishment if detected we hurried off to the pt field drill square or the academic block as per our timetable pt means 40 minutes of constant motion and the pto start the instructor ensured our feet didn't touch the ground for longer than a few seconds for the entire duration except of course when while doing push ups technically pt had two components one to build up our physical strength and stamina and the other to build technical prowess in activities like climbing ropes jumping over obstacles and performing maneuvers and contortions like handsprings and cartwheels but to us at the receiving end it seemed like an unending period of running 
jumping, lifting or climbing. After 30 minutes of running, to warm up, we would line up behind the rope gallows, which had tall steel frames with four vertical ropes hanging down on them for climbing or a beam, which is a wooden bar embedded in concrete pillars for the chin-ups. Since only four cadets used the equipment at any given time, the rest of the squad was kept busy and warmed up by either jumping up and down or doing the push-ups. PT was strenuous, but a breeze as compared to the drill. As the drill stars would never tire of reminding us, drill is the bedrock of discipline. Since immaculate turnout was supposed to be an integral part of this discipline, all drill periods began with the instructor going over us with an eagle eye, looking for the slightest sign of sloveliness. They had exacting standards, a small thread hanging from a button or a minuscule stain on the brass buckle of our belt meant the erring cadet having to do a round of the drill square on the double. We had to learn to march, halt, salute and turn in perfect unison. But like PT, most of our time was spent on warming up by running around one of the four guns that marked the four corners of the drill square or doing a unique jogging on the spot kind of an exercise that was called Tor Kadam Tal. Another warm-up exercise, a favorite of the drill instructors but hated by the cadets was Flatfoot. You had to jump so high that your knees hit your chest and then land stamping both your feet together as hard as possible. The impact of such activities on the brains of 16-year-olds would make an interesting research topic for someone looking at reasons for competence amongst the generals of the army. In the 10 odd minutes of the drill period left by the time the instructor satisfied himself that we had warmed up adequately, we practiced ceremonial parade ground movements. On double outdoor days, you had drill in the first period, followed by PT in the second. There was a 10 minutes break in between to change the dress and rush from the drill square to the PT field. Reverse outdoors meant a variation of this where PT came before drill. This became even more tedious as dressing up for drill is a complicated process. Doing it under time constraints, we invariably fell short of the drill instructor's standard of turnout with inevitable consequences. Breakfast break lasted one hour. Within this time, we had to run back to our barracks, shower, change for classes, run to the mess, have our breakfast and then run to the academic block for classes. Those of us who had joined the academy for getting away from studies received a rude shock. Academics were an important part of the entire scheme of things and we had to study a wide range of subjects. Even those who opted for humanities, studied physics, chemistry and math, supposedly as a foundation necessary to have a basic understanding of our weapon systems once we became officers. In addition to history and geography, our curriculum included military history, military geography, geopolitics, English and Hindi. Failing in any subject would mean becoming a brigadier, a prospect none of us relished. So despite frequently giving in to the temptation of dozing off after a tiring double outdoor, we did our best to stay awake and keep abreast with our studies. Classes kept us busy till lunchtime and after lunch, it was time for squadron period when we were at the disposal of our squadron officers. This time up to the evening games, we spent in maintenance and upkeep of our barracks in the area around it, which is called Shramdan, polishing our kit or any other activities that the officers came up with to keep us busy. Then came 90 minutes of games and we could take our pick between football, volleyball, basketball or hockey. We practiced the game of our choice and later during the term inter squadron matches were held. Both squadrons had four strings or teams for each of the games but I was one of the few with the remarkable achievement of not making it to any of the 16 strings. We came back dirty and sweaty after games, had a much needed shower and settled down for a study period. One hour of compulsorily sitting on our study tables after having dressed for dinner, supposedly studying. The duty officers and drill instructors would go around to 
ensure that everyone was on their tables where they were supposed to be but you can take a horse to the water sit on our tables we did most of us spend that time doing anything but studying from writing letters to reading novels to dozing off cadets made the best use of this time at 8 pm sharp we moved to the anteroom where the cadet appointments read out orders for the day after which we moved in for dinner for an hour after dinner we got what we called my time the only part of the day not actually structured and we spent it as we wished most of us did more of whatever we did in the study period during this time letters novels or just chit chat lights out was 10 pm and after all the exertions we didn't need any urging for that sleep came the moment we lay our weary head on the pillow and the morning always seemed to come too early so folks stand by and look out when i read the next chapter for you which is aptly called food friends welcome to the book reading session wherein i am reading a book called academy bonded for life written by lieutenant colonel rohit agarwal today in this book i am going to read two chapters for you the first called food and the second called instructors the writer says one distinct memory i have from those days is of being perpetually hungry for someone who used to be finicky about food at home within a few days of arrival i started eating everything the mess served mess food wasn't bad but we were told it wasn't half as good as the food we would get at the main academy the topic of main academy would come up several times a day in all our conversations we had heard so much about it that it assumed the form of a mythical place with magical wonders as well as unspoken horrors the wonders included majestic buildings with individual cabins for every cadet instead of being cooped up in a dorm with seven others and gourmet food cooked in a state of the art kitchen the horrors comprised of seniors who as per the legend lived only to vent the frustrations of their lives by tormenting second termers so somewhere deep down all of us had a fatalistic anticipation of the inevitable meeting with our nemesis and a belief that the 6 months we were spending at ghorpuri was just fattening up for that slaughter that may or may not have been the reason for the meals being plentiful and wholesome betty in the morning came in insulated canisters with leaky taps brought by the mess boys in a rickety handcart and placed at several locations around the barracks a tray of dog biscuits much later in life i learned that the correct nomenclature was dough biscuits accompanied the canisters in the mad rush to get ready and be in time for muster we rarely got time to relish the first mug of tea and biscuits breakfast was my favorite meal despite being always rushed we got gobbled up our eggs and shoveled in as much porridge and toast as possible in the ted on minutes left over of the 1 hour breakfast break after deducting the time for bathing changing and transit a heavy breakfast invariably resulted in a pleasant drowsiness in class and we soon learned to regulate our intake based on the temperament of the instructors of the classes on a particular day lunch was a little more relaxed but least appetizing of all meals dinner was the most leisurely meal and four days a week we got continental fare i enjoyed the cutlets and scotch eggs but it was unfulfilling for many who didn't consider a meal complete without proper dal roti there was a cafe on the premises our only other source of sustenance since we couldn't step beyond the gates of the campus cream rolls and bread pakoras were our favorites there but on weekdays it was difficult to nip across and indulge even if we had the money to do so one more source of food fast diminishing was the stash of grub most of us had brought from home besan laddus mathis shakarparas and assortment of other non perishable goodies our mothers had lovingly packed for us 
One of the perils of communal living in the dorms was that we shared and shared alike, especially when it came to food. So soon we all had run out of our stocks. All of us did buy some biscuits etc. from the CSD canteen and hoarded them for sudden hunger pangs. Then Gurdeep came up with another brilliant idea. Maggie noodles were also available in the canteen and he had an ingenious solution to the problem of how to cook them. He took two razor blades. Those days we had the good old double-edged blades, not the instant razors of today, and fixed them on opposite ends of a wooden pencil. Getting hold of two wires, he wound one uninsulated end to each to one of the blades. He inserted the other end into a plug point after immersing the whole pencil contraption into a plastic mug full of water. To our amazement, this improvised immersion rod worked very well. Though it took much longer than the advertised two minutes for the Maggie to cook, it served our purpose admirably. The only catch was that the entire barrack would get involved in the enterprise and a packet of Maggie didn't go a long way between eight people. But something was better than nothing. Instructors of various shades and hues controlled our lives. On top of the heap was the commander, a crusty colonel whose stratospheric position accorded him in a godlike status, boosted further because he had been decorated for gallantry. He was far removed from the humdrum of our routine and in the normal course we would have got to see him only on special occasions like finals of inter-squadron competitions. Except that he had a penchant for arriving at one of the squadrons late at night once in a while and order the duty officer to summon all the cadets. Once we gathered in the squadron parade ground in our dressing gowns, rubbing our sleeping eyes and trying our best to stifle yawns, he would exhort us to sing patriotic songs. I'm not sure whether these nocturnal performances did anything to enhance our patriotism, but they certainly made our lives more eventful. Each squadron had a major or equivalent from Navy or the Air Force as the squadron commander and five captains or equivalent as divisional officers. They were also referred to as directing staff, DS. We came to realize that generally the naval officers amongst them were the most sadistic and Air Force officers lay on the other end of the spectrum being most jazz or easygoing. The DS from Army was spread along this spectrum depending on their individual makeup. The squadron DS didn't really instruct us in formal classes. They were formally responsible for our discipline, welfare and informally to make up for the absence of senior cadets by trying to make our lives as unlivable as possible. At least that's what their role seemed to be to us. They also had the responsibility for inculcating officer-like qualities OLQs in us, assessing us and writing our reports in our dossiers. In effect, they were in charge of every aspect of our lives except for the time we spent in the academic block. One DS was detailed as the duty officer every day, his role being to find new ways to torment us. He could start from morning muster by dishing out punishments for infringements like moving on parade or improper turnout. It could continue throughout those by him menacingly hovering around to ensure the Ustads worked us to the bone without break or remorse. He didn't have much to do with us through the rest of the day while we were under supervision. But the most preferred time for duty officers to hunt for prey was in the evenings. He might appear silently behind an unsuspecting cadet taking a well-deserved nap during the study period or intercept a hungry soul sneaking off to the cafe for a quick bite at a time he was supposed to be elsewhere. We hated it most when the duty officer would order a fallen after dinner. This would take us only an hour we had to ourselves, potentially ending up as impromptu PT session or worse. The academic instructors were mainly civilians with a handful of Army Education Corps officers thrown in. The former were usually more tolerant and sympathetic towards us. They overlooked our propensity to grab 40 wings in a class while the uniformed instructors would take it as a personal affront. But compared to our squadron officers, even, there were more forgiving of minor transgressions. The 
civilian instructors with an odd exception were younger and had not spent too much time in their appointment they were not very clued on how about the functioning of the wing outside the academic block some of the smarter cadets grabbed the opportunity and took advantage of their naivety for example one imaginative cadet requested to be allowed to leave classes early as he had to get his tank issued the young instructor an english graduate fresh out of university viewed the request with sympathy and acceded to it the glib cadet thus got an extra long lunch break on the whole the academic block had a more relaxed air about it then there were the jcos the junior commissioned officer nncos non commissioned officers instructors for pt and drill the jcos were always dressed or addressed as sahib even by officers as is the norm in the army the ncos were called ustad the urdu word for teacher most of the pt instructors were good natured and inclined to joke around with us even while driving us to exhaustion sprinting jumping and climbing but the drill instructors seemed impervious to any human emotion except disgust and indignation they were always impeccably turned out boot gleaming brass shining and not a crease on their uniform out of place their entire vocabulary consisted of stock phrases and words of command barked out in short bursts just like god created mothers because he could be everywhere drill instructors were probably created because the ds couldn't be everywhere all the time it's another matter that there was nothing remotely maternal about them they were the custodians of our discipline on and off the parade ground and often waited in ambush to spring upon anyone not doubling up or moving without a squad between the squadrons and classes their peculiarities aside both the pt and drill instructors were outstanding in their respective trades it was a treat to watch the pto start effortlessly walking on his hands or doing a series of handsprings or the drill instructors marching on the drill square with so many different categories of instructors to take care of various aspects of our training it seemed to us that in every part of our routine someone existed with the sole purpose in life to make ours as difficult as possible little did we know that all of them put together would pale in comparison to the capabilities of one solitary third termer when it came to doling our misery we had 6 months to go for that kindly wait for the next episode as it comes out next week thank you